Today, my guest, Brent Hoffman, gets really real as he shares his childhood trauma with his dysfunctional family and how it eventually led to serious drug abuse and addiction. He tells vivid details of how his drug use went from being a means of coping and fitting into the cool crowd to taking a dark turn for the worst. Contemplating suicide on many occasions and finally hitting rock bottom when another drug user stole his car, many of his personal possessions, and left him in the middle of the Nevada desert on a cold November night. This led him to finally seek help and get into treatment. His journey has been a 25-year process, but today Brent celebrates eight years clean and sober. He shares what enabled him to pull himself back to a real life filled with opportunities, forgiveness, and acceptance. If you would like to be inspired by a story of true redemption, this is it. Brent is a dog lover with a career in long-term care administration, providing services for our senior population. My guest today is Brent Hoffman. Brent, welcome to the Authentic Gay Man Podcast. Hi, Maddox. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you here. I know that uh, your topic is going to be a topic that is uh, big and that there's going to be a lot of people that are interested in what you have to say. So just to tell the listeners a little bit about how you and I know each other, and I really, they've heard this over and over because this is the way so many of the men have come to know me and me know them is we met in a large virtual gay community online about maybe a year ago or maybe a little bit more than a year ago. Uh, And we have been in group calls together. We have done one-on-one calls together to get to know each other. Uh, What would you like to add, Brent? Yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. We, uh, Meeting you through that through that program in particular has been a godsend to me. Uh, you know, our friendship has developed. I love engaging with you and, and look forward to doing this podcast with you. Thank you. Thank you. I feel the same way. And we got to meet in person in yes, July in a retreat in Austin, Texas, where the two of us got into ty- entirely too much mischief. We caused a little bit of mayhem in the conference by just stirring the pot a little bit. Um, (laughs) Me? (laughs) Us? Did we really do that? Yeah, I think we did. Um, So first question, what does it mean to you to be an authentic gay man? How would you define that? Uh, Being true to myself, being the person who I've been meant to be and sharing that with others. Beautiful. Anything else? No, I think that, 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 that sums summary. it up. Yeah. You know, I have just gotten some amazing answers to that question. Um, and everybody's had a little bit of a different spin, but it's been phenomenal to see how people are, are responding to that question. So thank, thank you for that. I think you're, you're, you're spot on. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit more about about Brent and his his journey. Tell me what is 
the most challenging aspect? What is the thing that you've been through that has challenged you the most in this lifetime and maybe is still challenging you? What? So yeah, D, all of the above. Yeah. So I will start with the end. And I, that is that I'll always be challenged, right? Uh, I think if I just accept where I'm at and the person I am, I, I, I don't want to be stagnant. I always want to grow. You know, I grew up in a household uh, that was very dysfunctional. I had a parent that had uh, some mental health issues that were difficult to treat during that time. Uh, and the family dynamic had a profound effect on me. Um, and that led me into uh, drug use and very, very heavy drug use um, that took control of my life and stopped me from being the person that I could be. You know, so, I so Brent, how, how old were you when the, the mental health issue came into play and the family dysfunction? So I, I believe that family dysfunction and mental health issue was always there, right? Before I, you know, was even cognizant of it or had the ability to see it or understand it or grasp that it was something. Uh, but I can remember probably, you know, seven eight years old, seeing things that just weren't right and being treated uh, emotionally in a way that was not healthy, was not nurturing, and, uh, you know, led me to believe that there was something wrong with me and that I was different. So are you okay with sharing some specifics about the the trauma that you went through at that time in life? Sure. So, you know, my parents currently are in their 80s. Um, I'm grateful that they're around and I have the relationship that I um, do with them. And I want to preface by saying I have done a lot of work, which we'll get into a little bit later in forgiveness and healing. Uh, So I do have a really good relationship with them at this point in time. But I think, you know, my dad traveled uh, for his job when I was younger. And uh, my mother had untreated bipolar one. Um, So there was a lot of experience where we could be doing something and things were fine and turn on a dime. And she was batshit crazy. Um, You know, I think that there were, I know that there were a lot of times when uh, I would attempt to express myself, uh, whether it be showing emotions or asking questions or wanting to be vulnerable right? I didn't necessarily know that's what I wanted at that time. But when I expressed vulnerability, I was shut down. I was scolded. I was laughed at. Um, So that really taught me, don't share anything. Don't don't show who you are. Um, You know, I... um, And so, so what you're really describing is experiences that separated you from your own authenticity because we, we we're born we come into the world fully authentic 
Right. Right. Absolutely. Those experiences began to separate you from that part of yourself. Yeah. So how did that, what did that look like? I mean, when, when you would try to express yourself and you said, mom got batshit crazy, what did that look like? Well, and it wasn't necessarily just when I was trying to express myself, it was just engaging, you know, if we didn't do anything, I, you know, we as kids, and this isn't uncommon from that generation, we as kids were uh, meant to be seen, not heard, right? Uh, it very much felt like we were an inconvenience for uh, our parents. And when I say we, myself, my siblings, uh, you know, many discussions with them. And, you know, I think they have very uh, similar thoughts and views, right? Uh, it was almost like we were there to accommodate our parents instead of our parents there to, uh, to, nurture us and guide us and help us grow you know it was get the dishes done dust the furniture vacuum the rugs change the tv station um you know it wasn't you know there there were not opportunities for engagement and you know talking about feelings so you had a lot of life bottled up inside of you absolutely and the the time from that trauma when that all started to the time that you actually began to use drugs what age were you when when the drug abuse came on to the scene so i can tell you that i was in high school probably my uh junior year in high school so what would that be 11th grade uh i was at some friends and somebody had some marijuana and I tried it and I fell in love. Um, you know, it was just the best feeling ever. It was this bliss and I didn't have to feel, you know, it, it, it was just a internal bliss that uh, I loved. And from that day forward, I was a daily pot smoker. Yeah. Well, and, and, and leading up to that, that childhood trauma and then this, the space in between there till you were began to, to, to use, what was going on inside of you as you that, that built up to the point where, you know, drug abuse became the answer? What, what well, was, if you can you know, I, I think one of the things was is my you know, childhood friendships or, uh, you know, I, I had friends, uh, but I wasn't, I never had like a real big group of friends. I wasn't like in the in crowd. Right. And so my using, you know, and the way I used was attractive to some people. Right. And I started becoming a cool person because I smoked weed and then we'd do whatever while we were high, eat, hang out, talk, play video games, uh, you know, and, and I felt like I was more accepted in that world. So that made it very, very attractive and enticing, didn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think that sometimes when we have oftentimes traumatic experiences, it's on a subconscious level, but we make 
those experiences mean something about us. Looking back on that, can you tell what, was there any type of meaning or did you make up some story about you as a result of all of the childhood trauma? Well, yeah, I felt responsible for the things that went on around me, you know, having, you know, having a parent who had mental health issues and blaming you for the cause of her angst was very traumatic, right? I believe that I had to be a certain way in order to prevent her angst and her, her breakdowns. And, you know, the thing was that I learned, I felt like, you know, if I acted this way, I would not provoke, right? But then I acted that way and that was provoking, right? Because there was nothing I was doing to cause these uh, breakdowns on her part, uh, but it... So no matter what I did, it was never going to be right, right? You you know, you couldn't win anyway. I I, I I couldn't win. It was. So, I, so I, I'm curious. On. What did you make that mean? The fact that you bombed out every time you tried to to make it work. What what did that? I mean, how did how did you internalize that? I guess is what I'm asking. That I was never good enough, right? And and you know, I felt like no matter how hard I tried. And not just at that, at anything that I was just never going to be successful. I was never good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Wow. So um, tell, tell me more about where the, the path in, into that addiction. It started off with just pot at a party, but and it was great in the beginning, but there was a point where it took a turn and I'm assuming wasn't so great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, that went in, on through college, uh, you know, into uh, grad school. I was very functional. It didn't affect me. It just kind of numbed me. Um, and then, you know, I dabbled with some other drugs from there, you know, but it 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 wasn't anything that overtook me. You know, if there was cocaine or mushrooms, uh, LSD, I participate and I enjoyed it, but it never grabbed a hold of me. Um, I ended up moving out West, uh, leaving St. Louis and going to Arizona. I spent some time in Arizona and Nevada, back to Arizona. And uh, that choice was to get away from my problem. Um, and I always blame my family for my problem, right? My, my family was my problem. And what I soon learned when I left was that there I was, right? Oh, yeah. The saying, no matter where you go, there you are. Exactly. This is a perfect example of, of that. Exactly. And you know, I think the interesting point is, is that I went to, you know, I went to great lengths to get away from what I believe to be my problem. And is what I realized was because of my upbringing and my experiences, 
I had a problem, right? And it wasn't necessarily just drugs at that point. It was my self-esteem, my self-worth, my uh, sense of where I fit into the world. Um, so well, your, your own mental health was being challenged. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, uh, I remember coming back to St. Louis for a visit. I don't, it may have been a family special occasion or something. And I came back and I remember being on a plane and flying back to out West and having this like epiphany that I need help. And I did, I got into therapy, I got onto an antidepressant and, you know, that helped to a certain degree. Uh, but I had trouble being honest with somebody else. You know, it was very difficult for me to open up and to share who I was and what my experiences were to make any, any impact on myself. So I continued to struggle. Uh, when I was out West, I was at a, I had some friends that we went to a white party in, uh, Palm Springs and somebody there offered me some methamphetamine and wow, I had a wild party night with that. And I remember saying to myself, if I ever had a connection for this drug, I would be fucked. And when I developed a connection for that drug, I was fucked. Um, you know, it, it started out, it was great. It gave me energy. It gave me, uh, it allowed me to have fun without any inhibition. It allowed me to be productive. But that uh, turned very quickly and it brought me to a very dark, dark, dark place. Um, and how long ago was this, Brent? So I would say that was, I probably started using methamphetamine on a regular basis, probably in 1997-ish. Um, and you know, I, you know, first it was just a party thing. Then it became something I needed to survive, uh, you know, and I didn't know how to stop. Um, you know, I had tried multiple treatment centers. Um, I had tried, uh, just quitting on my own and I did not have the ability to do that. Um. You know, the darkness was to the point that um, I financially ruined myself, uh, which was just a small aspect of what the drugs did to me. Um, I had lost all my friends. Uh, nobody wanted to be around me. Um, it affected me significantly in in my mental state uh i ended up getting to a point where i had um i lost my train of thought i'm sorry um 
I started hallucinating, auditory hallucinations, visual hallucinations, olfactory hallucinations, um, talking to people that weren't there. Uh, it got very ugly and very dark. And it almost became for me a, uh, a spiritual war between good and bad. You know, and I truly believe today, I've come to know that the disease of addiction is not just about the use of drugs. It's the disease thinking and the selfishness and that nothing else is more important than meeting what was a basic need. Wow. You know, I, 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 you and I have had many conversations and I, I knew that you had a history with drugs and, and recovery. And, but this is like to, to, to really get down into the weeds and really know the true story. Was there ever a time when you considered when it got so dark that you considered taking your own life? Multiple times. Um, I didn't want to die, but I didn't want to live the way I was living. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. You know, I, I've studied enough about suicide to know that it, it's uh, the, the the primary thought in our mind when we commit suicide is I just cannot take one more moment of this pain. Yeah. It's it's not about hurting anyone. It's not about abandoning or leaving anyone. It is 100% about ending the pain. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it was so painful and, you know, people who are not addicts, uh, it's difficult for them uh, to understand that it is not a moral deficiency that it is actually a disease and it's diseased thinking and that there is no, just don't do it anymore. Right. Um, no, there's there, not. I mean, we, we have enough science to back up now that genetically people who are predisposed to addiction, you, if you got that gene, you're predisposed. If you didn't get that gene, you may not have too much to worry about. Yeah. There's been volumes written on that just in the last few years. There is a, a genetic thing about this, and that's why oftentimes alcoholism or drug abuse will run through generations in families. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when I look back at, you know, my, my family, my parents, you know, my mother definitely had a food addiction. Uh, there, there was no question about it, right? I, it's not for me to say that she's an addict, but her behaviors and her response to the world around her was very similar. You know, it was just through food and, uh, you know, how addiction affects us and makes our life so unmanageable. You know, it, it, it's exhibited in people in different ways, right? Did the addictive behavior ever spill in over into other areas of your life? Like, did you find yourself ever be like, 
you can be addicted to anything. I mean, we have a chemical addiction and then we have emotional addiction, two completely separate things. They go hand in hand. Oftentimes I've, I, I don't, I'm not an addict myself, but I have studied this. It fascinates me. So I've really read a lot and studied. You can be addicted to almost anything. Oh, absolutely. You know, the sex addiction, you know, when, when an individual's uh, inhibitions are down, uh, right. I would go online and go to bookstores and go to places and have sex with complete strangers. Right. And, you know, those numbers are, you know, astronomical. And I don't say it with pride, but the inter the sexual interactions I had, I, I couldn't count the number I had. And it was trying to find something, you know, I was looking for love in all of the wrong places, um, you know, and that in itself was an addiction. Use and have sex and use and have sex and use and have sex. They went hand in hand for me. You know, tell me how you, how this lands for you, but it's just been in the last couple of weeks that I have realized that we're all seekers, you know, every one of us are seeking something. We're all searching for something, looking for love in the wrong places, the way you worded it a minute ago. And I've just come to realize, because I've been a seeker a lot of my life, and I have just realized that perhaps the, the primary thing that we're seeking is to reconnect with our authentic self that we got separated from when we were children. Because life, somehow, we, we all got messages where if you didn't get separated from the, the, the authenticity that you were born with, then I, I don't know anybody that hasn't. I, I Seriously, life just does that. We get the messages. We get the, the traumatic experiences that tell us that it's not safe to be fully authentic and vulnerable. We shut down. And that creates this, to me something's missing in our life. Absolutely. We're, we're not connected to ourselves. We're not living our authentic life. And that's, we're seeking something. And what we don't realize is we're out here in this external world seeking it when what we're truly looking for is inside of us. And that is to reconnect with our authentic self. How does yeah, that? I couldn't, I couldn't say that any better. That, that's absolutely true. I mean, and literally, I, that that connect the dots has just come for me through these interviews, not interviews, conversations that I have been doing with guests for this podcast. It's been amazing how much I am learning. I'm, I mean, I, human behavior has always fascinated me, but as I delve into these deeper conversations, and specifically with gay men, I'm I'm learning so much, but. Yeah. And, and you telling me, yeah, I, I get it. I think you're spot on. We're seeking our, our, our own authenticity. Well, and I, I believe that, you know, it's our nature to want to connect, right? That, that's what we want is connection with other people, you know, a, a deep, intimate relationship and i'm not talking about just a sexual relationship right oh, no emotional I, I, intimacy I, friendships family members absolutely and for me that was stifled right and i didn't know how to dig in and 
experienced that for so long. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into how I've overcome some of that here. And I guess just a bit, but is what I do know is that, you know, from my life experiences from childhood, you know, it was such a dysfunctional environment at home uh, that I learned to open up the front door, walk out, close the front door, put a smile on my face and act like everything is all right, right? Don't show anybody, don't be honest with anybody, don't, uh, don't let people know, right? I remember on more than one occasion, uh, there were some kids that lived next door and one of the kids, he was maybe a year or two younger than me. And he would ask me what was going on in the house that he could hear the screaming and yelling from outside. And, you know, that just made me, you know, I don't remember what my response was. Uh, but I remember not wanting to engage with those people because they might figure out what my secret was. Yeah. Well, you know, talking about like you, I get it completely talking about that connection that we, you were seeking when we can't connect with ourselves in an authentic manner, how successful are we going to be at connecting with others? Absolutely. It's just not, not going to happen. You know, right. so the more we seek that external thing, the the more it um, the more it debates us, the more evasive it becomes. Uh, yeah. Um, so let's let's venture over now, and I'd love to hear. So when when. You you said it was maybe 97 when you went down to that dark place, started using yeah. the heavy stuff. When did you, I know you've been in recovery more than once. That's correct, right? Well, we'll, we'll say I, I've been in recovery for a long time. It worked better at some points than others. So, but, but, but it has been a continuous journey of recovery since, uh, so there was an event uh, where I was hanging out with some shady people and uh, an individual came over to my home and uh, we were hanging out. And next thing I knew, there was a gun to my head and this individual was taking off with my car. Um, it was a crazy weekend. Uh, I, he left. He came back. I was high. I didn't know how to deal with it. I, there was so much fear wrapped in it, uh, and I ended up being uh, robbed of a significant number of my belongings. Uh, my car was loaded up with those things. He took me to some ATM machines uh, to get some cash and then took me on an adventure out to the desert where the gun was then put to my head and I was told to get out. I truly thought I was going to be killed out there. Um, I wasn't. He left me in the middle of the desert. Uh, I was living in, in the Phoenix area at that point in time. Brent, and, Brent uh, t- tell me in that moment, gun to your head, get out of the car, leaves you on the sand in the desert. What, 
what was what was going on for inside of you in that moment? So looking back on it, it was surreal. And I was high and I was numb. And I think the only thing I really had in my mind at that point was survive, do what I need to do to survive, you know, and some survival instincts kicked in. I remember keeping my, he was driving, he had the gun on his lap in a way that it was pointed to me and his finger on the trigger. And I kept my hands on my lap. uh, So I did not give him any reason to believe that I was going to make any uh, swift actions. I there there were moments where I felt like I could go for the gun. And my concern was at that point that I could do that. And there was a possibility I could take control of the situation. But there was a 50%, there was a 100% chance that somebody was going to get hurt at that point. And there was a 50% chance that it was going to be me. And I did not want to risk it. (coughs) So once I, I, we were pretty deep into the desert uh, on, on an Indian reservation. And so I was calm through that thing. It, you know, there, there was, it was just survive, you know, it, I wasn't even riddled with fear at that point in time. I just wanted to get away from the situation and have it go all, go away, you know, and that was typical of most of my experiences in, in, in active addiction was I just, just ignore the fear, right. And, and survive because you were so numb is that because of the the effects of the drugs themselves sure sure absolutely <clears throat> so the uh so at that point in time I, I i i was literally in the middle of the desert it was cold it was november right so the desert got cold at night and um i saw a little cluster of lights in the distance. I don't remember exactly how far far it was, but I, you know, walked towards that area and it was a little cluster of homes on the Indian reservation. And there was a man out in the yard. Um, I started calling out to him uh, before he could even see me uh, because I didn't want to startle him. I didn't want to just come up to him. and it was very kind. And he invited me into his home. And I remember there being a family there. And they got a hold of the reservation police. The reservation police took me to their station uh, and then contacted the Scottsdale Police Department. And they came and got me and took me home. Um, and initially, the police uh, really kind of just brushed it off. You know, I think they just thought, you know, here's another junkie, right? With his drug and fueled experiences. And, you know, it's what comes to you, right? You deserve this. Uh, And interestingly, it, uh, 
there was somebody who was arrested who somehow told the story to the same detective who this happened, who, who, who was involved in, in my case, if you will. And it ended up, uh, the guy did get arrested and he did some time. He did 10 years uh, for that. And a couple of other things that, that were other crimes were, you know, concurrent uh, his sentence. Uh, and I do monitor this individual uh, still, I check up on it and he's been in and out of prison since then. Wow. Um, but that experience was what got me to my first recovery meeting. Uh, there was an individual I knew who, um, who was an Alcoholics Anonymous and he, uh, and I contacted him. He was a good friend at that point. And I said, I need help. And, you know, I, I was fearful. This individual had the keys to my house. He had my vehicle, um, you know, so I went and stayed with him and he was like, you need help. And I was like, yeah, I know. Um, and that started the journey. You know, it was another, you know, it was another two years of uh, going to meetings and getting high and trying to live in uh, halfway houses to try to, you know, and what, what was the time frame on this? What approximately, what year are you, you? So we're talking after that, that, that experience happened in November of 2000. Uh, and so there was probably November to 2000. Uh, I ended up coming back to St. Louis, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, in February of 2002. So there was that uh, attempt to get clean, going to inpatient and outpatient treatment centers um, in between, you know, so that was what, about 12, 13, 14 months that uh, I continued to struggle. Um, before I got to a point where I was just losing everything. I couldn't keep a job. I couldn't uh, pay the mortgage on my house. I had a ridiculous credit card debt. Uh, and it got to a point that I was going to die. You know, whether it be from the drugs themselves or the lifestyle I was living, it was going to kill me, you know, and at one point in time, I went to another friend's house and he ended up finding my family's phone number and my brother came out uh, and we ended up driving back to St. Louis. And uh, that's where I really started my journey of recovery. But but that was that in itself. You know, I came back, I came for a week and uh, tried to figure out to get into a treatment center here in St. Louis. And the, um, my sister found a place that would take me. And when I got there, I saw it, it was in a rough part of St. Louis. Uh, it was an old, old building. There were a bunch of people hanging outside and I knew these individuals were crackheads. Well, I wasn't a crackhead. I was a needle using methamphetamine addict, right? Uh, I had reached the bottom, so I thought, um, and 
I felt like I was better than those individuals, right? I mean, that's the disease of addiction. I separated myself um, for a multitude of reasons. And my, we got there and I told my dad, I, this wasn't the place for me. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I'll figure it out. And I, we went back to my parents' house which is the place I absolutely did not ever want to be again, right? Uh, you know, this is what I ran away from, and this is what my disease took me back to. And I got a hold of a cousin, and I said, you know, this is what's going on. They think I'm crazy. Uh, and I convinced her to wire me some money, and I got in my vehicle and drove back to Arizona so I could get high some more. Wow. Yeah. So how long have you been clean and sober? So clean and sober, uh, my clean date is July 15th, 2013. So just about uh, eight and a half years. And how... Did you, what was the defining factor that finally made you get serious about it? Okay, so uh, let me back up just a little bit. Uh, you know, I started, I, I got back to St. Louis. I started doing uh, meetings regularly. Uh, one of my struggles, and this goes back to, you know, leaving the, leaving the house and acting like everything was okay. Well, I did that in recovery. I didn't know how to open up. I did not know how to tell people I was hurting. I did not tell people I wanted to get high. So what did I do? I continued to get high, right? There's all these people in recovery, you know, my friends, my sponsor, acquaintances, you know, people who have been clean and know the disease of addiction, who I could reach out to for support, but I had so much shame and so much embarrassment over the desire to want to continue to use, yet I couldn't open up my mouth to tell them and say, I'm struggling, I'm hurting, help me, right? Yeah. So what was it that finally enabled you to speak out? You know, I... I switched to crack cocaine. I became one of those people. I didn't know where to get meth, but I found some connections for crack cocaine. And then that became my problem, right? Um, which once again, really, it's not the drug, it's the disease of addiction. But there was one weekend in particular in July of 2013 that I was off and running and using, you know, a significant amount of crack that weekend. Um, it became Sunday evening. I had to work the next day and I had been using all weekend. And as I'm picking up the phone to get a hold of my guy for more dope and thinking, I don't want to do this anymore. And I still went to get the drugs. You know, there's a concept we talk about using against our own will, right? Like we do not have the ability to stop. And for whatever reason, I, I, I went to get the drugs. And as I'm driving, 
I thought to myself, this is the last time. And I can't tell you the number of times that I had told myself just one more time, just one more time, just one more time, just one more time. And it was never, but there was something about that time. And I cannot tell you what it is, what it was. I still don't understand it. Um, you know, it ties into uh, my relationship with a higher power that I just knew it was going to be my last time. I smoked crack all night. Um, there was a guy in recovery who was my sponsor, although I didn't really utilize him as a sponsor. And I sent him a text in the morning and I said, I surrender, I need help. And he sent me a text back and he said, it's about fucking time. <laughs> and uh, he had been waiting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I told him that um, I needed to go to treatment. And he said, let me know what you need from me. Right. And I then waited until eight o'clock in the morning. I called a uh, human resource, uh, regional human resource director who I had worked with for years. I was at the company I was working with at that point in time for seven years. We worked together. I had an amazing boss and I called this woman and I said, look, I need help. And she said, we got you. We'll do what we can for you. And you take the time you need to get yourself in the right place. I said, great. Will you call my boss? She said, absolutely not. You need to call him. <laughs> right. And she put the responsibility on me. You know, I put the responsibility of everything on everybody else, just like my mom did to me as a child. Right. It was what was modeled. It was what was modeled, right? It was everybody else's fault except my own. Um, and, you know, I talked to my boss. He said, great. I ended up going off to a treatment center and, um, and that's where it started, right? I mean, really the beginning of my recovery, you know, mm -hmm. I had, uh, I decided to get a different sponsor about six months later. I asked this guy who, you know, if you met me and him on the street, uh, he is, I would say he's very conservative in his views. He is a uh, carpenter by trade. Uh, he has his own business, but he's very blue collar. Like if you ever met two people who could be any different, you know, when this gay guy asks him to sponsor him, I think it took him a little aback, but he was somebody that I saw in meetings regularly. And there was something about him that was attractive to me. And I'm not talking about in a sexual way. I'm talking about in the way he lived his life. Um, so the Harry I, met I, Sally moment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want he, what he has. Yeah. And he, I asked him to be my sponsor and he said he would do that. Uh, and he said, question for you. And I, yeah, he asked me, what do I do on a daily basis for my spiritual condition? And I looked at him like he had three heads, right? I really didn't know what that meant. 
And this guy has a spirituality uh, that is not based on religion, but it's a connection to a higher power that um, helped me develop my own connection to a higher power, which I call God. Uh, you know, it's not based on, like I said, any Bible uh, or any dogma, but it's my own personal connection to myself and the world around me. Um, and that has evolved uh, over the years and it continues to evolve. Oh, of course. So so let's bring it home. Yes. Let's, let's share with the, the listeners what is... What is life for Brent like now? Gosh, you know, through working 12 steps and really digging deep into who I am and as a person and what I want out of my life and coaching and the development of my higher power, I'm okay with myself today. I'm okay with the person I am. Um, you know, so, I am, yeah. so what you what you're describing, this being okay with yourself, liking the person that you are, and the way you got there, you're you're describing you did the work. Absolutely, it you know, was I, I, a lot I of can, work. I continue to drive this home with the audience that life isn't going to magically change all by itself ever. No, it, no, it does not. If you're going to have the life that you desire. If I'm going to have the life I desire, I have to do the work. Absolutely. And there's no way around that. Yeah. You, 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 there's, the only way you can get to the other side of Mount Everest is to fucking climb Mount Everest. There's yeah. no way around. There's no way under. You got to climb Mount Everest. Well, and, and climb, climbing Mount Everest was, you know, digging deep and, you know, learning to, I think one of the biggest things for me was learning that I could trust one person, right? If I could only trust one person and start getting out what was stuck inside me, that was the beginning for me, right? And, and where where did the point come in where it was like about trusting you? I'm sorry? Where Where was the point where it became about trusting you? Well, I think, you know, I had to learn to trust myself through rigorous honesty, right? If I was telling a lie to somebody else or the ability to recognize the lies I told myself over and over and over and, you know, working, doing step work for me was, you know, there's a lot of questions in the in the 12 step program I am there's a a, a, wor a step working guide that asks a lot of questions hard questions hard questions right and you know I didn't just look at it and answer the question in my head I didn't sit down at a keyboard and type it out you know the expectation for me was put pen to paper there's something inherent about writing that out, the physical act of writing it out and getting out what was going on and, you know, whatever the question may be, right? And it was being honest with myself. At that point in time, all I had to do 
was put pen to paper and put it in a journal and answer those questions. And and I started figuring out who I was and, you know, what was wrong with me and how I could become the person that I wanted to be. You you had to look, took an honest look at the not so pretty parts of yourself and your life. Yeah. People are, most of us are really, are really afraid to do that. Yeah. We're afraid of what we'll find when we go within. I'm amazed at how many people have said to me, I'm afraid to look within. I'm, I'm afraid I'll find something that I can't handle. Yeah. And there are some things, I mean, there's a lot of things that I did that I'm not proud of. Right. Well, we, all, we all have those. You know, there's absolutely things I've done that I'm not proud of. Yeah. And, you know, is there shame? Yes. Is there remorse? Yes. Is there acceptance? Absolutely. You know, that's beautiful. Just because I did those things, those things don't need to define me. You know, I don't live that way anymore. So what words of wisdom can you drop on anybody listening that might be struggling with any form of addiction, not just drug addiction, but just any form of addiction what wisdom can you drop the thing that really helped you get through that maybe you could pass on to another person that's in challenge or struggle? So the reality is, is, you know, there, there is a certain amount of joy or something that you get from that addiction, right? It feeds and satisfied some basic needs, right? And until you want to not use whatever it is you're using, more than you want to use it, using is always going to win, right? I think that's important. You really have to get to a point that you want it and you want it for yourself. It can't be doing it for another reason. Um, And and did that include finding healthy ways to get those needs met that had been being met through the addictive behavior? Yeah, you know, I think those needs that I had to that that I wanted to be met, you know, those continue, right? I don't I haven't met all of my needs when we talk about, you know, uh, healthy, adult, loving sexual relationships, something I still haven't gotten to. I believe I'm capable of it. I believe I'm uh, that that person's out there for me. I haven't given up hope on that. You know, look, if a junkie like me, and I don't use that term junkie, but I was, right? Uh, I stuck needles in my arm. I wore long sleeve shirts in the 115 degree temperature in the Arizona desert to cover up my 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 bruised up arms and and you know the you know the the physical effect on me, you know. If a junkie like me can get clean, I am absolutely certain anybody can get clean. Yeah, there's hope for yeah for anybody that's willing to, you know, we, we have to be, my father used to say there's help for those that are willing to help themselves. Yeah, you know, there were, there's people that I've reconnected with from my past that uh, truly thought I was dead. Like they believed I had died from the disease. That's 
part of the rumor that, you know, because I, I picked up, left Arizona, came back and, uh, you know, came, came to St. Louis and I disappeared, right? Uh, we didn't have really Facebook or, or you know, communication uh, and social media where we can connect with people like, you know, back in the that that point in time where I disappeared, if you will. So people thought I had died, you know, uh, and I have some great friendships. You know, there are stories, you know, there's some stories and aspects of my using that I can laugh at today. Right. Um, you know, one of my one of my dear friends who I've seen a couple of times this past year who lives out in Arizona, uh, I had called her and asked her to help me. Uh, I was convinced that my shoes had microphones in them and they were listening to me. You know, we can laugh about that today because I actually almost had her convinced that it was going on. How that really occurred, I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, there's so many stories, but, uh, you know, I don't want to uh, focus in on, you know, all of the stories of things that happened uh, because they're really are not relevant to the uh, to where I am today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what what you you do have a, a very unique and awesome story. Thank you so much for sharing this. Is there, before we wrap, is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that I continue to work on is, is, is becoming a better version of myself. Uh, you know, I know what I want. Uh, I, know that I don't have to be stuck in any situation that is not healthy and authentic for me. Uh, you know, I've just, uh, you know, I've worked in a, career, a lifelong career working in healthcare and healthcare administration for many years. And, uh, you know, the last two years with COVID have been um, very taxing and have had a huge emotional effect on me in not such a positive way. And, you know, I had felt stuck so long and, you know, recently in, in September, I gave my resignation and I have taken some time uh, to figure out what I want to do when I grew up. Right. And, you know, and until I take my last breath, I'm probably not going to be fully grown up. Right. Well, I think that's, I, I feel the same way. Yeah. I hope not. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to ever arrive because what do you do when you arrive? I just, the life is just the journey. You know, yeah. when we arrive, we take our last breath. I don't, yeah. I'm not in a hurry to arrive. Yeah. So thank you for that, Brent. The, yeah. Your, your story was truly amazing and, and your, your willingness to go deep and share very explicit things. I, I just want to on, honor you for that that takes uh, a lot of courage and a lot of strength. Great. Thank you. So how about some rapid fire questions? Let's do it. Are you ready? I'm scared, but let's do it. How many really close men, gay men, friends do you have? I'm talking about the men who you can bear your soul to. Mm. I would say probably five. Mm. Wow. You, you are are very fortunate. 
Yeah. I, I think there's probably a lot of people that could not say that. You are very fortunate. Wow. I love that. So what has been, and this may be already covered, but we'll we'll go here anyway. What has been the worst moment of your life thus far? Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure I can really pinpoint one moment. Um, I think one of the most painful experiences I've ever had is I had this dog. His name was Sebastian. He was a child and he was the best dog ever. Now, I got another dog running around here somewhere uh, and I love her to death. But man, that boy, Sebastian, and when I had to put him down, gosh, I never knew what grief was until I put that dog down. Wow. It affected me for a long time. I can feel that as you share that. Wow. So what has been the best moment of your life thus far? Mm. Getting clean. Oh, beautiful answer. Getting getting clean and uh, starting the journey of living. You know, I, I want to acknowledge you for the accomplishment of getting clean because there we both know lots of people that never achieved that. Yeah. So I just really want to acknowledge you for all the hard work that you did, um, the blood, the sweat, the tears, um, putting yourself first and doing the work. Just bravo, brother. Bravo. Thank you. Yeah. That means a lot to me. Well, and I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. It's been absolutely amazing. I want to thank you for having me. I've loved your presence and I want to leave you with one thing. Okay. I want you to know that you, my friend, are indeed an authentic gay man. Thank you. Love you, Maddox. I love you too.